And I would invite you to take your Bibles and open to Mark chapter 6. Paul Washer said once, There is no such thing as a great man of God. Only weak, pitiful, faithless men of a great and merciful God. There has only ever been one extraordinary man to carry out the will of God. We are all just ordinary men and women who serve an extraordinary God. We are sinful. We are feeble. We are finite. We are those that have come to know the grace and mercy of a righteous, powerful, and infinite God. This morning, we will look at one extraordinary man and 12 ordinary men. What we have here in Mark's text, Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 52. It's an account that we are all familiar with. Jesus walks on water. Follow along with me as we would read the Word of God. Picking up in verse 45, Immediately He made His disciples get into the boat and go before Him to the other side, to Bethsaida, where he dismissed the, while He dismissed the crowd. And after He had taken leave of them, He went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and He was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got in the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. This ends the reading of the Word of God. Here we are picking up exactly where we left off last time. Time would not permit us, but I would encourage you to read the previous section. Jesus has fed 5,000 people. It's the same day. We're coming to the end of this first day, this day of feeding the 5,000 And picking up in verses 45 and 46, we enter into a transition here. We read that immediately he left his disciples, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida. He's sending away the disciples now. The scene is still there. They had just finished eating in this desolate place. This throng of people have all been fed. And now he's sending sending his disciples away. We must understand here that the Savior's focus is on getting his disciples out of this setting. We must ask the question, why? Why would Jesus not just go with his disciples? Why does he send them off ahead of him? Jesus does everything deliberately. Every action of Jesus is deliberate. Understand this, the food has been served, the crowd is now full, And according to John, the parallel passage, there is a messianic fervor that is taking place now. Jesus perceives that the crowd wants to take him by force and make him to be king. This is not the plan. This is not the messianic plan. 
And so to prevent the disciples to getting wrapped up in this, he sends them off ahead. He doesn't want them to get sucked in, so he sends them ahead in a boat with 12 baskets of bread. But we must understand here from this passage that Jesus demonstrates patience even with this crowd. They want to make him king. He already is king. But they want him to usher in the messianic kingdom. They don't understand what's going on. But Jesus shows them patience for their lack of understanding. We read here, as you would notice, he dismissed the crowd. They are dismissed, they are dispersed, and he goes off to pray. Verse 46. Understand this, Jesus practices what he preaches. Remember how the passage, the previous passage began. The disciples come back, they tell him everything that they have done, and he says, great, that is wonderful. You need to get away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Well, Jesus does this very thing. He went up to the mountain, verse 46. He went up on the mountain to pray. This is the Savior's focus. He does not compromise on his communion with the Father. So he goes up to pray. He went away by himself to a desolate place. Jesus does not allow the intensity of the moment to cause him to lose focus on prioritizing what is most important, communion with God. So this is the transition that we see here. The disciples are in a boat. They're getting sent out into the Sea of Galilee. The crowd is being sent home. They've been fed spiritually. They've been fed physically. They have full bellies. And Jesus is going up on the mountain. So we're going in three different directions here in this scene. We will all come together in a boat, though, when we finish. So picking up in verse 47. This is a transition verse. This is a scene-setting verse that Mark wants to put a picture in your mind so you can see what is going on here. He tells us, When evening came, the boat was out to sea, And he, Jesus, was alone on the land. All of the disciples are in a boat heading southwest or west towards the direction of Capernaum and Bethsaida. The sun is setting over the western mountains of Galilee. And Jesus is on a mountain praying to his Father. If there was ever a prayer meeting that I would love to sit in and not say a word, it would be this one. I would love to have seen what it was like to watch Jesus pray. And so this is where we are. Evening turns into night. In fact, it turns into at least 3 o'clock in the morning. Jesus is still up on the mountain praying. Jesus comes down from the mountain, and the Savior's focus turns from solitude and rest and prayer to the predicament that the disciples find themselves in. It's interesting to note, anytime the disciples are away from Jesus, bad things tend to happen. Once again, this is no different. And so Jesus, verse 48, pick it up here and follow along with me. Jesus looks out over the Sea of Galilee and sees that they are in a bit of a difficult situation. They're in a predicament. In fact, Mark would record for us, they were making headway painfully. For the wind was against them. It's important to note, I'm not a seasoned sailor. I've been on the water a few times, usually just taking orders. But I do know this. You cannot sail into the wind. You cannot sail directly into the wind. There's something called the no-go zone. And it's 22 degrees to 22 degrees of a 44 degrees that you can't sail directly into the wind. 
And so what these disciples would have had to have done, because the wind was against them and they were trying to go in that direction, is they would have had to zigzag all the way up to get to their destination. They're struggling. That's what Mark wants us to see. They're struggling badly. In fact, John makes it clear to us in his account that they pretty much gave up sailing. And so they went to rowing. And now they're rowing into the wind because this is the where Jesus told them to go. This is a struggle. And it, they're doing it all night. In fact, John tells us that they only made it three to four miles. That's not very far. Think about it. They get into the boat at evening. It's at least three, maybe six in the morning because it's the fourth watch of the night. According to the Roman time, that's the last watch between 3 and 6 a.m. And Jesus sees them. So even on a safe estimate, they've been rowing, trying to sail in a windstorm for at least nine hours, making it not very far. They have been in this situation once before, though, haven't they? Out at night in a windstorm, waves crashing over them, as Matthew tells us. This isn't something that they've not experienced, is it? Except the only difference here is Jesus is not on board. There is a big difference here. But his focus is on them. He sees them even though they don't see him. And Jesus is watching from afar at the shore and sees their struggle. The Savior's eyes are always upon his sheep. And we see in verse 48, he saw them Follow along with me. They were struggling out there on the water. The wind was against them. Fourth watch of the night. And we see these words. He came to them. He came to them walking on the sea. It's as though Mark just, matter-of-factly, just lets it be said. He was just walking on the sea. No big deal. You read this peculiar phrase phrase here. It says, he meant to pass by them. That's best to be understood as the perspective of the disciples as this is being told here. It's not a disclosure of Jesus' intention. But what I want us to focus on right here is the fact that Mark tells us he walked on the sea. This isn't something that we just should read quickly and move on, on to the next thing. No, something dramatic is happening here once again. In fact, as many times as in two accounts. From the day before to today. Once again, we see another miracle done by Jesus. Mark is stringing these together for a reason. He wants his Roman audience to know something very important. We're not dealing with just an ordinary man who did good things. We're dealing with an extraordinary man, very God of very God, no less. And so what we see here, once again, Jesus rises above the laws of physics. Last week, he goes and creates matter. This is rising above the first law of thermodynamics. Well, he's at it again. Now it's the law of gravity. The law of gravity and the law of relative density. Jesus rises above these things. Why is it when you go and try to walk on water, you sink? Well, the simple answer is because you're not God. (laughs) But because of relative density. You are more dense. You will go down. You know, as a child, I think there were two things that I wanted above all things. The first, I wanted to be Samson. I'd always heard the story of Samson. Well, I didn't totally know the whole story of Samson. Thankfully, people protected me. But he was this super strong man. He was the strong man who would avenge and and defeat the enemies of God. And so as as a young guy, six, seven, eight years old, I'd stand in doorways and, Lord, give me strength to avenge the Philistines. 
I wanted to be Samson. No matter how hard I pushed on the doorways, I never caused the house to fall down. I wanted to have superhuman strength. The second thing I wanted to do as a young person was I wanted to walk on water. But I, wasn't, I was okay with air as well, so I wasn't picky. As long as I could either levitate or walk on water, I heard these stories and I thought they were amazing. And so I would have these conversations outside of my house, growing up in Navy housing over in Middletown. And me and God, we, I would just have these conversations with God. I'd try to make deals, praying, Lord, help me to, to, to walk off this curb and, and I just want to float for a little bit. It doesn't have to be a long time. Ten seconds would be fine. Or if I were to find these deep puddles, I would want to try to walk on them just like Jesus did. I thought that would be so awesome. It would be just between me and God. I wouldn't tell anyone. These were my thoughts. And so I would try this time after time after time. And then one day, something miraculous happened. One day I was standing on the edge of a curb. I don't know what the neighbors were thinking. They see me talking and I'm just, and I take that step. And you know what happened? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> I hit the ground, and I realized I should probably focus more on being nice to my brother and sister and less on being superhuman. And I was content with that. But nonetheless, the imagination of a child, you read these stories, you see them on the flannel board, and you're thinking, this is amazing. This is because Jesus is God. That's the point. Because Jesus is the creator of these laws. Miracles are the sovereign works of God done by God for the glory of God. Not for the experience of a child floating or walking on water. You see, Isaac Newton discovers the law of gravity. God invented it. Jesus, in this moment we see here, this scene here, Jesus is walking on the water. It's not that there was a submerged sandbar that some people would say that always try to, rationalists trying to explain away the miracles of the Bible. No, he walked on the water. We don't need to try to explain these things away. It's true. Believe it. And so, Jesus walks out there on the water. And he does so, rising above the laws that govern our world that governed physics because he was focused upon his sheep. And he is going out to them. He walks out to care for his disciples. And I think this is an important note to make here. And the Nicene Creed rightly understands this. What does this tell us about Jesus, as I've alluded to? That he is very God of very God, nothing less in the Nicene Creed, we would read of the Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father, before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. This is who we are dealing with. This is who we are beholding in this text. It is the God-man. Jesus Christ, not 50% God and 50% man, 100% God, 100% man. Explain to me a 200% person. You can't, but it is true. This is Jesus Christ. The great miracle is that all of God was in one body, that in him the fullness of God dwelled bodily. 
That's the great miracle. The great miracle is in the incarnation. And so we see it even here in Jesus. So Mark wants his readers, and by virtue of those in Rome and now us, to behold the God-man in his glory. This is the Savior's focus as he makes his way out to the disciples. But then quickly, it changes. It changes to the disciples' failure. It is the disciples' failure that he brings, Mark brings to the forefront for us to consider even this morning. He does not deal nicely with them. And for that, I'm thankful. Consider verses 49 through 52. And the disciples' response as they see Jesus walking out to, him, to them. We read in verse 49, look at your text. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. Their minds are not in the right place. Think about this, what, they, what they've gone through in the last 24 hours. Certainly they're sleep deprived. They've been rowing all night into this headwind with the waves breaking over their boat. They're exhausted. They're sleep deprived. Nonetheless, they allow superstition to take over. If you were to ask them when was the last time that they were out at night in a boat on the water and saw a ghost walking to them, I'm certain they would all say, oh, that's never happened before. Yet that was the only way that they were trying to make sense of what their eyes saw in this moment. And so how do they respond? They cried out. This is a group of grown men, seasoned fishermen, some of them, who have spent their life on and around the Sea of Galilee. They're veterans of the water, and they're sitting there crying out because they think they're seeing a ghost. You know, I always know when my little Hazel finds a bug in the house. It does not matter where I am in the house. I can be all the way up, two flights of stairs, tucked away in the corner, working in my study with three doors closed, and I hear the shriek, this loud scream, and I know that there's an ant in the house somewhere. (laughs) She has saw the ant. And when I think about her screaming out in fear, I was quickly drawn to these disciples. Screaming out in fear. Ah, we've seen a ghost. This is crazy. They're expressing their uncertainty in the moment. And we would read why. For they all saw him. They all saw him and were terrified. Quite literally, they were frozen in fear, overcome by the moment. Picture it, a bunch of men out rowing in the midst of this windstorm, no doubt soaked from the crashing waves, screaming in the wee hours of the morning because they see someone walking on the water. Now, let's be honest. If you were in the boat, you would be doing the exact same thing. No doubt. And what we notice here is their first failure. They were fearful. They were fearful. Observe the kindness of Jesus. Verse 50, for they all saw him and were terrified. They were fearful. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. It is I. Does it not bring you back to the burning bush? Who shall I say sent me? Tell him, I am sent you. Jesus didn't say, it is I, the God-man, 
commenting on this. Matthew Henry says, He encouraged them and silenced their fears by making himself known to them. He talked familiar, familiarly with them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I. Be not afraid. Christ's presence with us in a stormy day is enough to make us of good cheer. Though clouds and darkness be round us. We must remember that, dear Christian. The disciples were fearful, but Christ dealt with them patiently. He did not chide them for their fears, but comforted them. Second failure we can see here in verse 51 from the disciples in this moment. They were forgetful. They they go from being fearful to being forgetful. Mark is very clear here in verse 51. It says, and he got in the boat with them. He wants his people to understand, his listeners and readers to understand, this really is Jesus physically in his body getting in the boat. He's not a spirit. He's not a ghost. He was literally there. He physically got in the boat with them. So there'd be no explaining this away, no Gnostic ideas of he's just spiritual. He's physically there with them. And we see he got in the boat with them and the wind ceased. The disciples have seen this before, have they not? And the wind ceased. The storm ceased. Mark doesn't give us the same amount of details as the previous storm. He's not being repetitive. Remember, his word is immediately, immediately, immediately. He wants to get you to the point. If he said it once, he doesn't need to say it twice. Matthew tells us that the storm was raging. Nonetheless, there was a storm that Jesus once again calms. A second time now that they see the God-man and creation submitting to the God-man. Now he's walked on water, he's multiplied matter, and he's told nature to stop. And how do the disciples respond? They are utterly astounded. They act like they've never been here before. They are forgetful of Jesus. Literally, this word mean, these words mean that they were completely outside themselves. And there are two reasons why they reacted this way. They fail to understand the person of Jesus, that he is the creator. They fail to understand the power of Jesus. Verse 52, Mark gives us the explanation. For they did not understand about the loaves. Now, it's quite possible that there's 12 baskets full of broken pieces of bread, probably maybe soaked at this point, who knows, in the boat with them. They could look at the bread. They could look at Jesus who has just walked out to them on the water. They could have looked at the waves and the wind and it all ceased. The point here that I think Mark wants us to see is that they had every reason. They had everything they needed right before their eyes. Had they remembered, no doubt they would have been amazed but not astounded. They would have been thankful but not felt threatened. They would have felt comfort, not frantic chaos. Knowing that they are in the care of the one who will hold them fast. But no, that's not what happens. They're utterly astounded. They are forgetful of who Jesus is and what he can do. And we are given as this passage ends in verse 52, we are given the ultimate reason why. We are given the reason why for their fearfulness and their forgetfulness, and it is because of foolishness. But their hearts were hardened. 
Now, I think this phrase deserves a little bit of explanation here. We understand that the heart, when we talk about it biblically, and when we use it even in our cultural context, the heart is the, the seat of emotion. It is, it is, the, it is the seat where, which the root of all intellect and our volitional life. It's really the sense of, it is the core of our being. When you tell somebody that I love you with all my heart, you aren't saying I love you with this blood-pumping organ in my chest. That's a, but what we, we are saying there is I love you with all that I am, with all of my being. In the Old Testament times, it was the bowels. I'm thankful we use heart now and not <laughs> I love you with all of my bowels. But it means the same thing. What we're saying is, is this the seat of emotions. So when we think here about this term, the hardness of heart, some of our minds might quickly go to Pharaoh. Exodus 7 through 12. And Pharaoh hardened his heart, and Pharaoh hardened his heart, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then you might jump over to Romans 9, and the Lord hardened his heart. Or you might think of the scribes and the Pharisees, their, their resistance and rejection of Jesus. They hated Jesus. They refused Jesus. They lived in a state of unbelief towards Jesus. What I want you to understand here is Mark is not putting the disciples in those categories when he uses this term. Yes, he does mean that their hearts were hardened, but not in the same way. They did not hate Jesus. They did not reject Jesus, but they did struggle. They struggled in a great way. They could not be charged with hatred or rejection. They battled unbelief, but they were not comfortable remaining in that state of unbelief. We must understand that these apostles, these disciples, they are born-again men. They are regenerate men. Jesus never sends out the unregenerate to go and do his will and preach his gospel. Yes, he's already done. He's commissioned these men. He's called these men. It's quite important to understand. And the point here that Mark wants us to see is the sinfulness of these disciples. It is the sinfulness of of the disciples. William Hendrickson, commenting on this passage and about their condition of the disciples, says, quote, their inability to draw the necessary conclusions from the miracles of Jesus was the result of sinful neglect to ponder and meditate on these marvelous works and on the nature of the one who performed them. Lest we want to throw the disciples out of this boat in the middle of the night the parallel passage in the Gospel of Matthew helps us to understand a bit more about their condition. Matthew is the one who records Peter walking on the water. Mark doesn't. It's not for his purposes. But after Peter steps out of the boat and walks on the water and, oh, you have little faith, and Jesus restores him, at the end of Mark's or Matthew's account in chapter 14, verse 33, we would read these words. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Oh, wait a minute. Do we have a synoptic problem here now? Because Mark says their hearts were hardened. And Matthew says, no, they worshipped him and called him the Son of God. Are they contradicting each other? Absolutely not. They complement each other. And we understand the whole picture of these disciples as we look at both of those accounts and how it ended. They are fearful. They are forgetful. They are foolish. They are sinful. And they worship Jesus, the Son of God, and confess him as such.
As I was working through this passage and I was asking the questions of these disciples, I say, come on, you knuckleheads. You just seem like you're always, you've seen so much. You've seen so much in such a short period of time. What's wrong with you people? Why do you act like this? You 12 are walking with Jesus. That was Tuesday. And by Tuesday afternoon, I felt like it hit me like the divine hammer on my own heart. I stopped seeing the disciples in this passage. And you know what I saw? I saw me. And I saw you. I saw us. I began to see that I wasn't just looking at a historical fact of 12 men on a boat, but I was looking in a mirror. You see, the Bible is the only book that as you read it, it reads you. And I would argue here, this passage is a mirror for you to look in. The disciples' failure is not outside of ourselves, is it not? Think about it. They are fearful, they are forgetful, and they are foolish. Does that not describe us at times? Maybe more times than we would like to even admit. Think about it. Fearful. We find fear, we can be fearful of so many things. Life events. Future. Job status. Political landscape seems to be a big one in these days. If the next election doesn't go this way, America is doomed. That's not true. We're fearful of government intervention. Fearful that the Bible is the most politically incorrect book in the world, and we hold to it. Many have to say and try to apologize for God because they're fearful of what other people might think. I might lose my job if I just be a Christian, so maybe I'll just be quiet. What's going to happen to my children as we live in a state of fear? Brothers and sisters, I want to tell you, if we have a government that says it's okay to kill babies, we cannot be silent. If we have courts and legislation that think they can redefine marriage, we cannot be silent. If we live in a world where those in authority call what is evil good and good evil, we cannot be silent. If we live in a society that allows children to decide upon self-mutilation, we cannot be silent. We should be more fearful of what happens if we are silent. But there are so many things in our life that we can be fearful of. Health issues. It doesn't matter. We're fearful in storms and we're fearful in trials as if Jesus is not nearby. As if God is just a distant deity and not an imminent father. In our fear, we can be functional deists. And we should not be. Robert Murray McShane said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. We're not just fearful, we're forgetful. We're forgetful often. We fail to remember who rules and reigns. That all authority belongs to Jesus. Jesus has not left the throne vacant. No, he sits and rules this day, this hour, this moment, and oversees all the affairs of life. Anybody that is in any authority is in a, is in a delegated authority under the authority of Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate authority. 
Christian, let me remind you of these words that Jesus says to his disciples. It is I. Do not be afraid. Take heart, Christian, lest you forget these words. Well, but many of us are guilty of letting the fear of the moment cause us to forget past faithfulness. Isn't this what happens with the disciples? The fear of the uncertainty of the moment, whatever they're in, they forget the past faithfulness of Christ to hold them fast, to preserve them, to demonstrate his power. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has never failed you in this life. And I can promise you one thing, he never will. False expectations might fail you, but not the God-man and not our Heavenly Father. Do not be forgetful. That's why it's so important you must be people that preach the gospel to yourselves. To be reminding ourselves of truth. In fearful times, Christian, look backwards on the providence of God in your life. It is God's kind providence that has put you in this pew this morning. He is good to you. Remember the past faithfulness of God to you. And also remember that even when we are faithful, faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. Christian, you are loved by God. You are held fast by Christ. In the midst of stormy trials, though it might seem that Christ be distant and God be removed, he has never left his children alone in the midst of stormy trials. As Christ is seeing his disciples from afar. The safest place to be is nearest to Christ. And in fact, he is near to us. So when it comes down to it, brothers and sisters, one of our greatest ministries that we can do is remind each other of this truth. Is to remind you of the truth of who God is and what he has done in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We are just to tell each other what we already know. Because we are forgetful and we are fearful. And ultimately, we are foolish. Like the disciples, we too are foolish people. We fail to meditate on the words and works of Christ. We can functionally live as though he is not present with us. And so before we cast out these disciples as utter failures, men who at times were certainly far from blameless, weren't above reproach. Many modern pastoral search committees would never have given these men a look. These are the master's men. These are men who are a work in progress. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. They're the foundation of the church. We are not above them, but we are beside them. We are in the same boat as them. What we need to understand, brothers and sisters, there's only ever been one perfect servant of the Lord, and his name is Jesus. God graciously empowers, equips, and sends imperfect people with a perfect message of a perfect Savior. That's our ministry. That's the church. So here's the point, even, of this message this morning. We must ask the question of this passage. How does Jesus deal with the fearful, foolish, forgetful failures? Patiently. He deals with them patiently. This is the reality of ministry, being patient with people. 
What you, know, what you do not see between verse 52 and 53 is a new list of 12. You didn't get it. You didn't get it. You didn't get it. You're done. I need 12 new ones that will get it. No, Jesus does not do that. No, the list remains the same. Jesus does not say, I'm done with you because you are failures. Again, these are the master's men. They were the called. Jesus, I've said it before, Jesus does not call the qualified. He qualifies the called. So what we need to see here, brothers and sisters, Christian, when you are fearful, when you are forgetful and you are foolish, how does Christ deal with you? He doesn't kick you off the team. He doesn't remove you. He doesn't say you failed for the final time. There isn't an expiration date on Jesus' forgiveness to his people. He's not counting to 490. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call you brothers. He is not ashamed to call you his own, despite your failures, despite your fearfulness, your forgetfulness, and our often foolishness. Some of you need to hear this message this morning. Some of you need to hear this message this morning because you are often gracious and patient with everyone but yourself. You can struggle with being a legalist unto yourself. God does not love you based upon your performance. God is not drawing nearer to you based upon your own personal behavior modification. God loves you because he loves his son whose perfect performance accomplished and satisfied his perfect righteousness. The righteous requirements of the law were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Others of you need to hear this this morning because you need to learn grace and patience towards others. We belong to Jesus, each one of us, and we are a work in progress. We are all on different paths and stages of sanctification. Be as patient with others as God is with you. We are the master's men and women as well. So let me ask you, how does Christ deal with you? He holds you fast. He deals with you patiently. There are times that you are disciplined for your own good as a father does to his child, Hebrews 12. But he is patient. You are his lamb for which he died. Jesus took your fears to the cross. Jesus took your forgetfulness of God's faithfulness, and that was nailed to a tree. The debt of your foolishness was paid in full by the Son of God. Every manner of sin that we've ever committed, Jesus bore and stood in our place for our forgiveness. And as Jude tells us, it is God's will to keep you and to present you before the presence of his glory with great joy. There is not a single sinner who has been saved by God and who is on their way to heaven or in heaven that God saw come in and thought, oh, no, not this one. He delights in the salvation of every soul that walks through those pearly gates, including you. Just as Christ is patient with you, believer, likewise, be patient with your brothers and sisters. Recognize this, God is even patient with your impatience towards others. And just because we fear, we forget, and we are foolish at times, 
we still must be like the disciples. We gather, we worship, and we confess Jesus is the Son of God. I'm reminded of Paul's words, and we will bring this message to a close. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Brothers and sisters, let me remind you, we are all ordinary people who have been saved by an extraordinary Christ and who serve an extraordinary God. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that your Son did not come to call the righteous but sinners. And we humbly admit that we fall into this category. And we recognize that there is but one perfect one that we look to, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb without spot or blemish. And we cling to His righteousness imputed to us by faith that You have given to us, O Father. We praise You for this righteousness. And I do pray that as we would seek to be like Him, we would grow in our patience towards others, our love for Him, and that we would put to death by Your Spirit the deeds of the flesh. Enable us, equip us, empower us for Your glory and our good, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.